0: BELL RINGS <noise>
1: And welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster from the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies, and
0: I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster from the firm Echelon Insights.
1: And each week, we're going to bring you all the polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So, thanks everybody for all again for all the great work folks have been doing, and welcome to all of our new listeners. We've just had such a great run the next the last few weeks in terms of ratings and reviews and shout-outs and tweets. So Thanks to you all. So as a celebration of that, we're going to take next week off the holiday week off, and then we'll be back. Um, So this is our last show for the year, but we've had a good run of having a, not a single week where we have not had a show. So, um,
0: and that's really impressive when you consider that like you had a baby. (laughs) I did have a baby.
1: I I had a baby. We both, you wrote a book, you gave birth to a book and we both travel (laughs) quite a bit. I think, you know, there's not a whole lot of weeks where one of us isn't going somewhere for something. So, um, um so we did it. So anyway, so we're taking the week off. We were thinking about how we were gonna do it, and, you know, decided maybe we should just take one week off to spend some time with our families, as you should too. But there's tons of great stuff in the back catalog that is evergreen and still interesting. So folks should download it and, and take a peek if you haven't done so already. So Chris I rec-
0: Yeah, my recommendation, go find our episode where we talked to Chuck Todd a few weeks ago if you are new to the show. It is Chuck Todd unfiltered and unplugged, yes. and you'll you'll love it. It'll give you some good perspective on, on this coming election.
1: Yes, absolutely. So what are the top lines this week, Kristen?
0: Uh, cruise control. Ted Cruz is having quite a moment, but can winning Iowa be enough for him? Uh, we'll t- take a look at polls about whether Ted Cruz is really defeating Donald Trump. Um, can Trump supporters be persuaded to support someone else? And Marco Rubio, sort of perennially in our top tier, who does he need to worry about most? And is it Chris Christie, Uh, a whole new world? My favorite troll pollsters at PPP have combined two of my favorites, Disney and politics. Uh, But you might not like the result when you ask people if they want to bomb the place that Aladdin's from. Uh, We'll talk to Kyle drop from morning consult about a study they conducted on who's hiding their support for Donald Trump. Uh, Americans tend to be more worried about terrorism than mass shootings these days, and there are big shifts in who they trust to keep them safe. We'll look at the latest polls there, uh, and happy holidays. We'll take a final look at how polling um, at polling on how people feel about this holiday season. Uh, but before we dive into that, last week we did a little sort of lead-in to Star Wars: The Force Awakens. We dove into some older polling data on what characters in the Star Wars universe people liked and disliked, and this got a lot of good. Reaction on Twitter. Um, I have seen Force Awakens twice. I want to assure listeners right now: if you haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to spoil anything for you. You've seen it twice.
1: You've seen now uh, two more movies in the theaters than I have in this <laughs> time last year.
0: <laughs> <But> that's okay. <laughs> uh, it's it's really good, Margie. So I, I I misinterpreted a Facebook post of Margie's. She posted something like. Um, does anyone want to pay to spoil the movie for her? Uh, which meant you can pay Margie for the honor of ruining these films for her. Right. I
1: mean, people seem to be struggling to not spoil the movie for anyone. I don't. I'm I not-
0: almost had to fire someone at Echelon because he was getting a little loosey goosey with telling things that he'd read in interviews and reviews that I had not yet read. And. We had some pretty forceful slack banter where I was like, Victor, if you don't stop talking about this movie, you're done. You yeah. are done.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I don't know when the spoiler window closes. Right. But I I know whatever it is, whenever I see it, it's going to be well after that imaginary date. So I, I said, look, I, you don't need to tiptoe around me. You can spoil it but it might cost you. Like, is that something I can actually charge for? And would someone pay for that? And, um, you know, so far no one has taken me up for it, but maybe there's a listener out there who would like to pay me to spoil, (laughs) spoil Star Wars for me. I don't know if people get a thrill out of doing that or not.
0: Well, there's not a ton of good polling on the new movie at this point, precisely because we are still in kind of spoilery territory. So all we really have are online opt-in polls with huge end sizes, basically the kind of poll that Donald Trump might really love. Uh, And the poll just asks which new character in The Force Awakens is your favorite. And, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of people took this poll. It was over at Rotten Tomatoes, which, so for those of you who don't know, Rotten Tomatoes is like the big movie review website on the Internet. Um, Basically, your score of how good your movie is – uh, you could do worse than the Rotten Tomatoes rating. Uh, and overwhelmingly, 45% of people who took this survey said that Ray, the character played by Daisy Ridley, um, is the favorite. Uh, in second place, Kylo Ren. I, I feel like I can't even say who Kylo Ren is played by because that's considered kind of spoilery which seems weird at this point. Well, um,
1: right. I mean, I'll se- I'll just send you an invoice. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I don't care.
0: <laughs> I sad because my absolute favorite character from the movie who I am sort of in love with uh, X-Wing fighter pilot, Poe Dameron um, only got 11% as the best new character, which he's definitely, definitely my favorite.
1: Now is Ray the winner because she's the only female. I can't really tell the gender of some of these
0: um, yeah, so, so she's female as well as Maz Kanata, who is the <laughs> the, the, the kind of weird looking Got it. The glasses. She, that's she's played by um, Lupita Nyong'o uh, oh. through capture. So um, it's it, so it's pretty cool. Her her role in the film I, is apparently smaller than it was originally going to be. That some of her scenes wound up on the cutting room floor. Um, but I liked her. Unfortunately, she only comes in at 2%. And then Captain Phasma, who you see there as the shiny stormtrooper, is played by um, uh, Gwendolyn Christie, who is in Game of Thrones. She plays um, she plays Brienne of Tarth, like this really fabulously awesome, strong female character. So Captain Phasma is also female, also comes in only at 2%. It seems that Ray really consolidated the female vote. Got it. But seriously, Poe Dameron is the greatest thing about the movie. But I digress. I don't want to spoil anything for our listeners. Let's dive into 2016. <laughs> Ted Cruz having a moment. Uh, he's up in the Iowa um, HuffPost pollster average. He is now ahead at 29.1% in the averages. Donald Trump's numbers still have continued to increase, but not nearly as fast as Ted Cruz's. Trump at 27.3%. Ben Carson has just cratered. He is now in the single digits. Um, It seems that Carson's – this Carson moment is coming to an end. Uh, It's really Cruz and Trump duking it out in Iowa.
1: Yeah, I mean, right. And so Cruz has had – he's been strong. He had – You know, he does a lot of experimentation, right? He had kind of a wacky viral ad that he aired during Saturday Night Live that's made some news and the reaction to that. His children are in it. And then the follow up about having his children in the ad, um, he you know, he's. He's had a strong moment by not – we've talked about this before – not really going after Trump. He's one of the few candidates who really is not going after Trump in any way, shape, or form, um, except for sort of one sneaky audio clip uh, that he didn't know about. so you know it, maybe those things are related. All that related to him being strong, or is he simply taking a lot of Carson voters, folks who were supporting Carson, and decided they want somebody else who's maybe a little anti-establishment, but with a little bit more gravitas, I guess, if you will, or a little bit more experience, just a little bit more seasoned than than Carson, who you know it, it doesn't have a doesn't have any legislative experience of any yeah, kind.
0: See- CBS YouGov um, did a poll, uh, and their poll they did polls in Iowa and New Hampshire um, of of these you know Republican primary voters, and uh, they found that in Iowa, you know again, Cruz at forty percent, Trump at thirty one percent, and then they said for each candidate, check the box of the phrase that describes them. And Ted Cruz dominates the electable question. Um, 63% of Iowa Republicans think he's electable compared to only 41% who think Trump is electable. Uh, More think that Ted Cruz is relatable than Donald Trump. But prepared is the question where Ted Cruz sort of blows Trump out of the water. That 61% of people think Ted Cruz is prepared, while only 29% of Iowa people, Iowa Republican primary voters, think that Trump is prepared. Yeah, uh, I mean it was- it's
1: interesting that people think more more people think Cruz is prepared than Rubio. I, I mean their preparation you could argue is fairly similar, comparable, I guess, certainly compared to Carson and Trump. And then uh, someone I relate to, this is what I found particularly surprising is that as someone I relate to that Cruz bests Rubio and someone I relate to um, you know I think of Rubio's language as being particularly inclusive aspirational friendly in a way that you know these other candidates don't always aren't always able to do.
0: Uh, Yeah it's uh, for me I mean I think that just shows that Just because Marco Rubio is someone that, you know, we've certainly seen poll after poll is appealing to a very broad swath of voters and tends to do pretty well in these general election matchups, that when you're looking at just the world of Republicans, but even more narrowly Republican caucus goers in Iowa, that Ted Cruz, I mean, has always had that sort of evangelical pastor-y kind of vibe that is, you know, it, that's kind of like a salt and vinegar potato chips thing, right? Like, some people love salt and vinegar potato chips, and other people are like, why would you ever consume that? That, like, why would you put vinegar on potato chips? That's creepy and weird. Ted Cruz is kind of like that, I think. And in Iowa, that, you know, Iowa Republicans like Ted Cruz's salt and vinegar potato chips. I mean, they like, they, they think he is relatable in a way that I suspect you would not see in other polls. Um, but even though when, when we moved to New Hampshire, this was really fascinating. It's not just Iowa in New Hampshire, uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz on this exact same question poll much more closely to one another, but Ted Cruz has the slight advantage. 29% of New Hampshire voters say Ted Cruz is someone they can relate to compared to only 26% right. of Republicans, um, But then when you ask uh, the question of who can you relate to and you ask about Donald Trump and Chris Christie, Trump and Christie actually come out much stronger, you know, slightly stronger than Rubio and Cruz, um, where you have Trump at 33%, Christie at 31%. You know, does New Hampshire have this vibe that's a little more rough, confrontational? You know, they've kind of got this Northeastern vibe that certainly is more of a Trump and Christie thing than a Rubio and Cruz thing. So it's fascinating to see how, these two early states perceive Trump, Cruz, Rubio, and then, you know, whoever the fourth place person is in a very different way, uh, you know, as you move state to state. And and in New Hampshire, you know, Trump is still performing super, very strongly there compared to the rest of the field. He's only at 32% in this uh, CBS YouGov poll in New Hampshire. The problem in New Hampshire is that the more, quote unquote, establishment candidates have not consolidated. So- right you have Cruz and Rubio and um, Jeb is only at 6% in this poll. People are saying Jeb is surging anecdotally on the ground. We will see if two weeks from now, when we come back to do the show, if that has uh, actually turned out to be the case in any polls. But you have the establishment votes like much more fragmented in New Hampshire, which allows Trump to look particularly strong in comparison to the rest of the field.
1: Right. But it is notable that uh, Bush is not even in some of these questions anymore. You know, he was yeah. the sort of obviously we have Bush and then who else do we populate our various questions with? Cause you can't ask all these questions about everybody. It's a struggle for every media poll to figure out how you. Ask about the field when the field is so big. How do you dig deep in a way that's methodologically sound and doesn't break the bank? And you know, now what they're doing is, is not including Bush in some of these questions. Um, but what's particularly interesting in some of these, and there's now a lot of polling about this as the Trump. I don't even know what metaphor to use, you know, that Trump sort of uh tornado continues to ravage uh all of our political dialogue is this question of do people agree with him? Do they secretly agree with him? Are they embarrassed by him? Do they support his views however extreme they may sound? There's a lot of new polling uh on this. So the same CBS YouGov poll in Iowa and New Hampshire actually found something very similar that about two-thirds to three-fourths of Republicans say they're glad about the things that Donald Trump says or glad someone says them they need to be said and discussed. That's the question wording as opposed to unhappy someone says them they don't belong in a presidential campaign. Um So that's way, way higher than Trump's actual support. So that means there are a lot of Republicans who may say I may not be with him, but I'm glad someone's saying them they need to be said, not even, you know, Well, anybody can say what they want. This is a free country kind of argument, but they're actually glad that someone's saying them. And I think that's, you know, this is a, I think, a polling result that took a lot of people by surprise. It's something that I've thought about as we look at these questions. If we're asking about them, are we contributing to the notion that some of these things are okay? These policies are worth debating. Somebody says them, and now we all, as pollsters, rush to test them. Are we now validating things that are, you know, at least in my view, in the view of even a lot of establishment Republicans, incredibly extreme. And, well, I, but but I, Republican I, voters maybe disagree. What do you think, Kristen?
0: Well, I, but we we have a situation now where pollsters are polling on things that don't even exist <laughs> uh, when it comes. I mean, that we are at the point of this election where so PPP. They're trying dilemma, to out-Trump Trump. They're trying to out-Trump Trump. So I, I always call PPP the troll pollster uh, that, you know, they they, they 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 put out stuff that's interesting and amusing. They know how to grab headlines. Um, they did a poll where they asked people um, a question about uh, Agraba. So Agraba is uh, a, a nation that does not really exist. It's the name of where uh, Aladdin is from in the Disney film. Um, and so they asked people, they asked Trump voters, um, would you favor bombing Agrabah? And 41% of Trump voters said yes, and 9% of people said no. Uh, And they asked the same question of Democrats. 36% opposed bombing Agrabah. 19% said they supported. And of course, this was pushed out as like, look at what idiots these Trump supporters are. They want to bomb the country Aladdin is from. But I actually think, I mean, I I saw some tweets from the folks at have post pollster about how, I mean, this just underscores how hard it is to really gauge people's reactions to policy proposals that most people have not thought deeply about, uh, you know, do I think mosques should be built on my block or not? Or do I think that we should bomb this country that I've never heard of? And so when people are kind of cornered in a poll or get, they get an IVR poll and they figure what the heck I'm going to take it. Um They'll, you know, they'll just they'll, they'll push buttons, you know, they're going to say, well, oh gosh, I, I'm not really sure what agrib is. Let me think about it. Maybe I can go research it. and You can call me back. So, I mean, that's just a challenge when it comes to any of this kind of policy polling. Um, I think what's really interesting about this, all these questions about whether Trump is embarrassing or not or whether Trump, you know, is it good that he says them? Quinnipi asked this question. Would you feel proud to have Donald Trump as president or embarrassed to have Donald Trump as president? Um, among Republicans, 44% said they'd be proud. So that's a drop off from the sort of 7 out of 10 who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's saying the things he's saying you know only 44% of republicans would be proud to have him as president and you have sort of a fifth who say they would be embarrassed presumably that's also the the fifth that in these questions in iowa new hampshire say i'm unhappy about the things that he's saying they don't belong in a presidential campaign what's going to be fascinating is that that 20 to 22% of republicans who say trump embarrasses me that's your republican establishment right like that's the people that hang out you know that's the when when conservative like talk radio hosts, talk about the like the cocktail party set. Uh, that's who those people are. I mean, are looking at are like horrified at this Trump phenomenon. But it is very interesting to me that that's only a fifth of the party that pretty much the other 80, 70 percent or so is like, even if they don't love Trump, they they're interested about what he is adding to the discussion or that he they they kind of like that Trump is trolling the establishment, that Trump is driving you know, this this fifth of the party completely nuts. Right. I mean, I think, you
1: know, it's one thing to drive uh, the establishment nuts. And I think those are valid conversations to have within a party about, you know, is the establishment losing touch with its rank and file? I think that's a reasonable conversation to have, you know, in theory. Right. In practice, it means you have like in the PPP poll. um, Do you support a national database of Muslims? Right. Trump's voters support this. Sixty six percent to 15. Um, You know, I'm assuming a lot of those people don't support a a national registry or national database of guns. Right. Of gun owners. Um, Probably not exactly opposite, but probably, you know, there's going to be not not a whole lot of people in the intersection of that Venn diagram. Um, You have. Uh, a lot of uh, Trump supporters, almost about half of Trump supporters think that thousands of Arabs in New Jersey cheered when the World Trade Center collapsed. And that's based on, a, you know, something he said that turned out to have no proof that he kept saying based on people tweeting at him. And, you know, there's been a lot of dialogue about that in the press of a couple weeks ago. Um, there was another one about whether or not mosques should be shut down or whether, uh, is, is, whether Islam should even be legal in the United States. So I mean, you have, um, about, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you have Trump supporters are, are about only a third of those should think that Islam should be legal. 52% think Islam as a religion should be illegal in the country. I mean, it's, these are pretty, you know, extreme views. And when you see them codified in polling in some way, um, Um, You know, I think it just furthers a conversation that – uh, you know, I think Corson's, Corson's everything, you know, Corson's our whole dialogue and really, you know, hurts our view, you know, our image abroad and, you know, throws everything kind of into uh, a lot of turmoil in terms of our foreign policy. I mean, there's a, there's a lot at stake when we continue the dialogue that the frontrunner has. and Are we fueling the frontrunner, making him stronger? I mean, these are questions that are hard to answer by just looking at, at one poll or, or two, but it is something that I think we all need to be thinking about as we continue to cover and discuss Trump and the polling.
0: And I I I mean we it's how far are we away now from the Iowa caucuses? I mean Just buckle a- up. We got an interesting next month ahead of us, especially if Trump begins to kind of lose to Cruz in Iowa, losing is not a look. is not a good look on Trump. Uh and so I only expect I, I we we may well two weeks from now be looking back at this point in the campaign and being like, Oh, that was the civilized day. That was the civilized moment. Now January is when the real crazy comes out. I mean, that's like I my expectations are just so like low and disappointed and shattered in this whole situation. Um so anyhow, I, I, I digress. We have a month until Iowa. Yeah. Um we will see if this gets Any loonier.
1: I mean, Charlie Um, Charlie Cook said he he was our special holiday guest last week, and I was on a panel with him, or I did a radio show with him this week, and he is just convinced, and he's written about this. There is no way that Trump is the Republican nominee. He just thinks there is no way that'll happen. You know, he's, and he, he said, look, last time around, I said I, I, I would enter the Tour de France of Giuliani was the nominee. <laughs> and so he's willing to make that kind of comparable claim this time around about Trump. But you know, that doesn't mean that Trump won't run as an independent if he's not the nominee. Anyway, it's all, it's not all bad news for Trump. He actually can claim a victory of his own in that he got his first Politifact true rating. So there was a couple different outlets that do fact checking when the candidates or the press say something. If they say um, we spend more money per capita on healthcare than the UK, they'll fact check it. Or there was a joke about the last Democratic debate, which they said was going to start at eight, and then they started at eight thirty, and they sent out a fact check like false. <laughs> you know, it did not start at eight. It started at eight thirty despite being told it was it started at eight. So Donald Trump got finally got his first um Politifact true rating. And it was about polling. And as folks who listen to the show, he's basically said something wrong about polling every week. You could have your own mini show just about Trump's polling analysis. But he finally nailed it. And it was talking about Vladimir Putin. He said that Putin has an 80 percent approval rating. And in fact, that is true in, in Russia, not obviously here. So good. Good job, Trump. You finally got some polling analysis. Correct.
0: Uh, So one final finding, we don't really have as much on 2016 overall, um, because there's so much focus now on this completely nutso Republican primary that is really, really close to happening. But there was also a question. So there was a question that Quinnipiac asked, um, the aforementioned one, would you feel proud to have Donald Trump as president, embarrassed to have Trump as president, or wouldn't you feel either of those ways? Overall, 23% of voters, proud, 50% embarrassed. Um, They asked the same question about Hillary Clinton. Would you be proud to have Hillary Clinton as president, embarrassed to have Hillary Clinton as president, or wouldn't you feel either of those ways? 33% of voters say they'd be proud, 35% said they'd be embarrassed, and 29% said neither. So Clinton certainly does better uh, on this question of would you be proud or embarrassed to have them as president, but I assume she's got to be a little nervous that only 22% of independents at this point say they would be proud if she was president, right? Only 42% of women overall said they would be proud to have Hillary Clinton as president. Those numbers don't feel, they don't feel great to me. They don't, I mean, certainly not as bad as Donald Trump, but they, they don't feel like a ringing endorsement.
1: No, I suppose there's more division there. I mean, you know, the independents, I guess, are are particularly tricky. I mean, the thing is Republicans and Democrats like on this question, like almost any question about anything, although not necessarily about the Donald Trump question, are complete inverses, you know, and just sort of reflecting how, how partisan and divided it's all become. So first we're going next. We're going to talk to. Kyle Drop of the Morning Consult, he's got a great report um, about more about Trump and about specifically about how methodology affects views toward Trump. So we're really excited to have him. So thanks so much, Kyle. We have Kyle Drop from Morning Consult with us today. We're so glad you could come and join us and talk about your new report uh, that you have about different methodology when it comes to Trump supporters, as well as introduce our listeners to Morning Consult, which I think may be new to some folks. So, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Uh, Thanks a lot for having me on.
1: So could you tell us a little bit about Morning Consult you and I have met and and I know Michael Ramlett one of the other um founders and uh Reed Wilson who was a reporter at National Journal and then at Washington Post is now also with you. Can you just tell us a little bit about Morning Consult uh what you're doing what your goals are for uh 2016 and and uh your role in the the polling the polling universe?
2: Uh, absolutely. So uh, Morning Consult a technology company. We merged a uh, media polling company. Um So we have a nonpartisan of the media side and then kind of a data and polling side. About two years ago, really when the company started, we saw that uh, on the one hand, on the polling and data side, that a lot of issue topics maybe weren't being covered in polling. There's a lot of focus on elections. And then on the media side, we had seen, um, you know, kind of this growth in uh, um, email newsletters, and, um, uh, and we had seen that that is very important to individuals. So we decided to try to combine them.
1: Are you guys affiliated with one party? Are you m- more neutral? Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Sure. Um, so the media side is congressionally credentialed, nonpartisan, um, and it's editorially independent from uh, the business side. And so there's you know, there's, there's sort of a firewall there. So, um, you know, anybody on the sales or business side has no role in what is published or what is not.
0: So I want to then dive in a little bit to this Trump study that you all did, because um, I'm so fascinated. I mean, what's neat is that you guys are you know, a, a polling company, and yet you're, you're really sort of constantly producing a lot of public-facing data that doesn't appear to have a particular client behind it. It's just kind of like, it must be really nice to have sort of the financial backing of a polling company to like let you explore all of these cool questions, <laughs> sort of even in the absence of a particular client. Um, and so, so just to confirm, there wasn't like a specific client asking for this Trump research, right? This was just sort of you guys had an interesting question that you wanted to dive into,
2: yeah, there, there was no client on this at all. Um, my, my background is is in research. Um, uh, you know, I, I did a PhD in political science at Stanford, and you know, I think my, my goal is to try to infuse everything in the company with you know that you know kind of excitement about doing something new. Um, and you know, we had seen this, we'd seen this wide variation in in how um, Trump was performing in polls, be it five points, ten points, maybe twenty points, based on the date of the interview, or um, who they were talking to, that is all adults or registered voters or likely voters, um, and, uh, and, and the way in which they were uh, talked to, whether it was by live telephone or, or IVR or, or online. And then we also seen other great research by, say, the Pew Research Center, uh, where they had, um, done a mode effects experiment, uh, where they varied the type of interview for a bunch of different other topics. And so we thought, you know, well, let's try to do some research on this topic to see, um, you know, whether, uh, whether these differences can be explained by one cause or another. And you know, we we think we have least made some step in in the direction of, of trying to explain why some of these polls varied so much.
0: Well we've we've had a chance to take a look. I think it was uh, the folks over at HuffPost Polster um, and and as well as Harry Enton in particular sort of took a look. And I see I know Harry Enton is sort of noted as somebody who sort of helped out on this on this project in, in your notes. Um, that, you know, he took a look at the polls, both in early states as well as nationwide. And, you know, you saw this gap between uh, whether a poll was conducted online versus on the phone. If a poll was conducted online, Trump did better. Um, At Echelon, we've sort of kind of we've noticed this as well, that, that Trump and to a lesser extent early on in the cycle, Cruz, seem to be doing better in any online research than in uh, telephone research. But what you all have done is, is really neat in that you you guys have the ability to provide kind of crosstabs. What type of voter uh, tends to change their behavior based on the mode? Uh, and and I think you all did something really interesting where it seems like you re- did you recruit all of your panelists online but then completed the Trump portion of the interview phone or online, depending on which bucket people fell into?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, in early to mid December, we recruited about 2,500 Republican and Republican leaning registered voters. And as you noted, every single person started it online, you know, coming in from one of these large online vendors. And they answered a few background questions. And then, you know, we varied how they would answer the same identical questions about Primary elections, namely the question about, you know, whether they would support um, Trump um, as their uh, nominee for the Republican nomination. And so we, we varied it just randomly so that they didn't have a choice. They either called an inbound call center, took it by live interview. They either completed it like normal online, um, or the remainder uh, took it using an automated uh, dial um, interview. And, uh, you know, Trump did about six points better. Um, online than, than by live telephone. Um, that's, you know, one of the, the headlines that we've seen from this study. But to directly answer your question, we saw, and we think that the main reason that there's this difference, um, is that, uh, your education level affects, uh, how likely you are to support Trump. You know, we've seen in tens of thousands of interviews, um, over the past few months. Um, that Trump's support base comes from men and, and from seniors and from, uh, adults with lower levels of, of formal, um, education. On um, this study, we found that, um, the entire difference in how Trump performed online versus phone, that is why he did better on online than by phone, was driven by people with higher levels of education. That is, people with higher levels of education seemed much less likely to support, uh, Trump when they're talking to a live, um, interviewer. And when they were um, taking the poll in a self-administered online fashion. So, you know, that was that was one of the subgroups that really stood out. When we looked by gender, that is by male or female, we didn't see that same trend. When we looked by age, you know, seniors or millennials or somewhere in between, we didn't see that difference. When we looked by region, there, there weren't um, tremendous differences um, on this. So the, you know, the education point um, really stood out, uh, you know, a, a final mm-hmm. subgroup that's, that's worth noting is, uh, that we took, uh, Gallup's likely voter modeling, uh, uh seriously. And we, we asked about 12 questions about whether people are going to vote or their interest in elections. And so when we look at the entire registered voter universe, it's about a six point difference between online and live telephone. Um, but when we kind of whittle it down to just those who are most energetic, we see about an eight or nine point difference. So that difference doesn't go away. I think that that. addresses, maybe some points that have been made about whether Trump voters are real or not. Uh, What was also
0: really, I mean, I'm I'm just fascinated by this study about the idea of reaching people with an online study first and foremost, um, but then sort of instructing them then to call a number. Um, Were were the sort of conversion rates pretty high on that? Did lots of people who were taking this online survey go ahead and jump to that next step?
2: Sure. Um, so we spent a lot of time on the research design side and, you know, I think we had probably wanted to do something like a two-wave panel where we would have phone then online or online then phone and you talk to the same person twice. I think that was the ideal way in which we could do that. But we thought both for time, cost, and concerns about response rate that that might be challenging. What we did do exactly as you said is we, you know, we ever start online, and we ran a bunch of pilot tests um, asking people to dial a toll-free number, a toll-free number that we had created. And we are only getting a couple percent of people calling it. This is just in a pretest, And people were we were asking why not, and they said they were busy or they didn't have access to a phone or somebody was using a phone or they didn't want to make a call. And so what we did is we um, we used a one-click voiceover Internet call. Um, since they're already online, no need for them to go and make a different phone call. So they could just... To a one-click inside the online poll, and so um, in terms of conversion rates, we had about fifty percent uh, conversion rate wow. for the people who took it by auto, um, you know, auto dial or IVR. It was about thirty-five percent for people who took it um, by live telephone. We did we asked a bunch of like um, kind of indirectly political questions at the very beginning of the poll, not anything related to election, but questions about your ideology or questions whether you're liberal or moderate or conservative and questions about um, favorability toward a few of the different candidates, Trump being one of the many candidates included. And so we asked about those questions exactly because we knew there would be less than a hundred percent conversion. And so it looks like in general, um, you know, we we saw the kind of the pre randomization Trump support levels and ideology look very similar um, among those groups that completed online, and among those groups that completed live telephone, and among those groups that, you know, completed IVR.
1: So you didn't have a different type of person go through the other steps of going IVR or live calls?
2: Yeah, be, you know, to, the, you know,
1: to the best, to the you best, can best tell. of our right.
2: knowledge and understanding, to the best we can tell, they're, they're pretty similar, and that's, uh, you know, that's not a you know, probably not a reason why there were differences.
1: And, you, so had, Kyle, and you, you had a live – and you had live interviewers around the clock in the inbound – I mean, we're getting pretty here in the weeds, but it is the pollsters and people – we have a lot of methodological experts and our listeners. So, I mean, you had 24, you had live interviewers available, 24 hours to take those calls, correct?
2: Exactly. We worked um, with a, a company that had 24-7 inbound call center capability, and so they, you know, they trained up dozens of, of interviewers to – um, to be able to take these calls, and so you know, in practice, someone called, and they're you know immediately said tra- to hold to, to you know talk to a live person, and then they they took the, the exact same um, questions um, you know by online as they did uh, by live telephone.
0: Uh, and uh, so I, Kyle, we were both on Morning Joe. I think it was uh, on Monday or Monday morning to talk a little bit about this, uh, right. and. You know, I, I think the thing that, that is the most interesting to me, and it's the sort of thing that I have heard Joe talk about on the show before, is this idea that people who are a little more upscale, but primarily, you know, those with higher levels of education, that they still do like Donald Trump. I mean, we see a lot of polls that show there is this big education gap where if you have a college degree, you're significantly less likely to support Donald Trump, Um but that you know, what your study sort of shows is that that gap might not be as big as some polls make it seem because people with more education are just a little more potentially embarrassed to say that they support Trump. They're embarrassed to tell another person that they support Donald Trump. Whereas people with lower levels of education may not have that level of embarrassment. I mean, that's that's sort of it's inferring something, you know, we can't know for sure that there's that embarrassment is the driver here, but to me, that seems your your finding just seems really in line with something that i that Joe talks about on the show a lot, which is sort of like behind closed doors, he'll be talking to people who are these more upscale, more educated people who you would think demographically shouldn't be Trump supporters, and they'll have this attitude, well, you know. I may not maybe I don't like Trump, but he says some things that I, I think are kind of, you know, interesting. And, and it's this kind of like cagey uh, response. And I just I found it fascinating that your study sort of confirmed that suspicion that uh, it's, it's not that everybody is sort of potentially embarrassed about saying they support Trump, but there is this like section of more upscale Republican voters who might actually be supporting him in a way that is sort of understating His poll findings overall when conducted over live interview.
1: Yeah. I mean, CBS, Uh, uh, CBS and YouGov just released a poll that showed the same thing about 70, you know, three fourths of Republicans say, even, you know, regardless of whether or not they're Trump supporters, glad somebody says what he's saying. These things need to be said, right? So they may not necessarily vote for him, but they still have the sense that he's, he's adding something. This is among Republicans, obviously. I mean, Kyle, what do you think these results say about the Republican feel, the Republican contest? Republican voters, what's the implication?
2: Sure. Well, you know, first and foremost, it's important to note I guess we we talked to a national set of Republicans, you know, polling around the country, and so we got a snapshot of what that view is. And, you know, in the polling we've done over the past few months that Morning consult, you know, Trump's consistently been, you know, at 35 to 40 percent leading the field, often doubling or tripling as near as proponent in Iowa and in New Hampshire it appears that the races are, are are more in flux and perhaps more um, competitive. I know that there was a poll out, you know just yesterday, showing that it was the race was potentially within four four percent in a national um, poll. Um, what I think this shows is, and and, and some of the, you know, the the coverage we've looked at has suggested this, that Trump's support might be underestimated in some of these phone polls. Um, you know, we think the leading. Um, explanation for why Trump is doing worse online, there's our worst by phone than online, is social desirability bias. This tendency for survey respondents to want to say things that might make interviewers have a more favorable view of them. You know, we've seen, you know, and I'm sure you guys probably do this a lot in your work, you know, we've, we've seen people over report things like whether they've donated in the past year, or, um, whether, you know, they're, they're going to vote or whether they have voted in the past um, or whether they've watched media. And, you know, we often see that social desirability is most acute among those people who are, you know, kind of higher income, higher education, those people who might, you know, have a you know higher level of, of guilt about maybe not doing something that, um, that they would anticipate that somebody else thinks is, is favorable. We, you know, we see that kind of both ways in the sense that, you know, people are also, you know, more likely to underreport, you know, undesirable activities. Um, uh, so, you know, that's in terms of, Uh, the impact that it has on on the race, you know, it's worth worth noting that in environments where you can make your choice anonymously, it appears that Trump does better. So maybe for the New Hampshire primary, where it's a secret ballot, that may mean that his support may be underestimated. In environments where your opinion might be more public, um, you know, maybe it's closer to what the phone is doing. So obviously, Iowa is a more public environment than those caucuses where you go in and, and you need to voice your opinion in front of people in your community, um, you, know, the, you know, then, you know, maybe that suggests that the, the underestimates might might not, not be as large there.
0: I wrote a column about a week and a half ago where I was sort of diving into that difference between the voting process in Iowa and New Hampshire. And um, actually, there was somebody, I believe, from Simpson College who tweeted at me uh, that that actually the way the caucuses do work is that at the end, there is kind of a secret there, there's this open discussion, but at the end, sort of, you put your like, you know, pen to paper in kind of a secret way, which I, I was unfamiliar with. Um, but but it is fascinating to think how can you make your poll match up more methodologically with with how the the method of action will be taken in terms of people voting. So uh, anyhow, really fascinating stuff. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kyle. And have a great holiday. Hey,
2: thanks a lot for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure.
1: So next, we're going to talk a little bit about security and the role it may play in 2016, or at least the salience of the issue. It's something that people, it's on a lot of people's mind, given everything that's been going on around the world and at home over the last few weeks. And there have been some polls out recently, and I know a lot of reporters are, are thinking about this and how it affects which candidates do well in the primaries. Um, and and it, it, I think the numbers suggest a real elevated concern about terrorism and foreign policy and uh, overall. I mean, Pew shows that for the first time since 9-11, the uh, government gets a negative job rate on terrorism. So that hasn't happened in, in years. Um, and It just dropped really very quickly over the last year. And now you have a majority, 52% say uh, the government's not doing a good job of uh, reducing the threat of terrorism. And 46% say it is. That's a drop from 72% saying the government is doing a good job just about a year ago. So that's a big drop. And then also a real concern over um, uh, uh, terrorism or planned or inspired by ISIS. Gallup shows that more people are worried about ISIS-inspired terrorism than about mass shootings. Um, now, that's chiefly true from a party difference where more Republicans are worried about terrorism than about mass shootings. That's pretty dramatic. Democrats are, are roughly equally worried. So you have um, about 23 percent of Republicans saying they're very worried about uh, ISIS-inspired terrorism, 13 percent very worried about mass shootings among Republicans. It's just 11 percent of Democrats for both of those. So that's kind of similar ratings. I mean, what what do you make of all this, Kristen? I mean, do you think that uh, foreign policy and worries about terrorism are often more salient in Republican contests? Do you think that's going to be even more true this time around?
0: Uh, I certainly think that the way the last couple of months have gone, I mean, has really shaken up the issue mix on the Republican side to where terrorism and national security are front and center. Uh, So it doesn't completely surprise me. I mean, also, if you you sort of listen to if you listen to what the president says on things like ISIS, I mean, the president's message is pretty sort of consistent that like we've we've got this. I've got a plan. Everybody don't panic. It's going to be okay. You know, that the president's message has tried to be one of, I think, in his mind, sort of reassurance. But I think for some people on the Republican side, they view it as sort of being dismissive of people's concerns. And so then, on the Republican side, you have a lot of people that are like, "ISIS is a huge deal. You know, we need to be prepared for this." There are a lot of people who are concerned, and I think folks from the left sometimes look at that and say, "Well, that's fear mongering. That's like, you know, just trying to to to, to stir up concern." That is outsized to the actual threat, and so you do have this partisan gap, um, at least in terms of sort of the candidates and and leaders within the parties over how concerned should we be about ISIS. And I I think that you know this Pew Research Center study sort of suggests that that at least politically that the Republican or the, the, the folks saying no 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 ISIS is a big deal and we are not doing nearly enough to combat them. We are not doing nearly enough to keep people safe, seems to be a message that's getting through with a lot of people. Now that you've gone from last year 26% of people thinking that the government was not doing too good a job at dealing with terrorism, that spiked from 26 to 52 percent is huge. And I think that really suggests that people are are concerned. They're they are they are fearful of, of what ISIS could mean for them and i mean it's just it no longer feels like this is something that just happens you know they're doing horrible things in the middle east now whether it's paris or san bernardino it it's the sort of thing that that could happen here in the minds of a lot of people um there's also some gallup data that that has come out about uh sort of ratings of police which you know views on police and law enforcement are a little bit different than than you know the issue of terrorism and national security itself um but, you know, in the last year, you know, this time last year, we were talking about what was going on in Ferguson. Um, you just had the grand jury sort of decline to indict the police officer who shot Michael Brown. Um, and at that time, you had this sort of decline in trust in police, um, particularly among non-white uh, adults. You in 2014, you only had 23 percent of non-white adults who said that they thought that the ethical standards of police officers was very high or high. You've seen improvement in the last year on views of the ethics of police, which I think is pretty shocking considering that in the last year we've had so many more headlines about these tragic instances of, you know, sort of young African-American men in particular, young African-American men and women um, being kind of mistreated by police. Uh, But even among non-white adults, you've seen this uptick in the ratings of the honesty and ethics of police officers up, you know, again, I mentioned 23 percent last year, up to 40 percent of non-white people saying they think that the standards of police officers are very high or high. Um, Those numbers increasing also is among non-Hispanic white uh, Americans. Um, So people are more trusting of police officers now than they were a year ago, despite many of many similar headlines, whether it's Freddie Gray in Baltimore, et cetera, to what you had uh, last year in Ferguson. And I wonder if these things are related where people are now really concerned about terrorism, they're concerned that their safety is on the line. And so they're more inclined to feel positively about police officers or first responders or people whose job is to keep them safe. Um and, and how that's just so different than how people think the government overall is doing it, protecting them from terrorism.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, maybe people feel that they need to have a lot of trust in police because they feel more unsafe in their day-to-day world. It could be that the sunlight brought to some of these incidents are making people feel that now there's more accountability and more awareness of the issue um, I, of, of police you know, uh, uh, badly treating folks um, particularly who are non- Um, I I think when it comes to all these issues, I think what it creates is a worry, whether it's police brutality or terrorism or mass shootings, a sense that there's instability, uh, uh, insecurity, anxiety, worries about the unpredictable that I think um, make people feel uh, uh, uneasy about where we're going as a country and about their day-to-day safety. I don't know if that ultimately changes how people vote. I'm always of a mind that these are not necessarily big vote drivers that people first think about their own personal personal economic security, financial security, their ability to make ends meet their and worries about their future for their children. and then a little bit later to things like violence that that is not necessarily in their day-to-day life. But that may change. I mean, that, you know, this year may be an exception or maybe there are some candidates who can can uh, capitalize on that more. I think it just remains to be seen. Also, it just depends on what external events beyond everybody's control will, will do.
0: Well, let's move into sort of our, our final block of kind of happier polling on happier topics uh, since it is the holiday season, I'm talking a little bit about. Christmas, um, and do people find Christmas itself stressful or enjoyable? Margie, what did we find? Well, you know what? People
1: find Christmas more, and the holidays season generally, not just Christmas, more enjoyable than stressful. I was actually surprised by that because they can be a little stressful. Maybe they're just a little stressful for me because you're either traveling, which is stressful during the holidays, or you're preparing for people to travel to you, which is stressful. Maybe, maybe this all says a little bit more about me than about America, but that's good. And I'm actually pleased to see that women, while they are more likely feel stressful than men, it's not dramatic, right? So 30% of women say the holidays are more stressful than enjoyable. Um, men, that's 24. That's not really dramatic. So, and there's not, you know, there aren't really huge age differences and, but there are, income differences so i guess they're more stressful because if you're you know downscale then it's just stressful stressful the the pressure to you know buy a lot of things all the things that are, are part of a, what we think of a holiday uh, celebration can make uh, can make anyone feel stressed so that that's not a surprise that there's an income difference um and then do you enjoy shopping for presents so women seem to enjoy that more than men i guess that's not a surprise a lot more men say they don't enjoy it at all. About a, a quarter of men say they don't enjoy it at all. A quarter of women say they enjoy a great deal. I'm not like a bit, you know, I guess I do enjoy buying presents, but I definitely don't enjoy going out in public to buy pretty much anything <laughs> like that want to do everything <laughs> remotely all the time there's just, that is Im- immensely more enjoyable than going out in person especially around holiday time so um, and again you know oh, I guess there's not that big of a difference by income in terms of enjoying whether or not you enjoy buying holiday prisons so that's that I found that pretty interesting I mean I don't know what do you think of this is this match with your experience and what you know about how people celebrate the holidays
0: well, so I was very fascinated that there's very little difference on these questions between those who have kids and those who don't have kids. So they also did this crosstab of if you're under 55 and you're a parent, or if you're under 55 and you're not a parent, um, are the holidays enjoyable or stressful? Are they, you know, do you enjoy shopping for gifts or not? And I, my perception, uh, like, so because I don't have kids, I mean, I am at my parents' house right now Uh I am being a, ch- I mean, I'm in my thirties and I'm that like, you know, woman child where I'm like, all right, well, it's, I'm taping this podcast and it's 11 o'clock in the morning and I'm still in my pajamas at my mom's house. Like this is unacceptable behavior for a 30 something. And then I have friends who have Sounds kids fabulous. and like, and like- <laughs> I'm like, I probably shouldn't be complaining about this. Like who knows how many times I will ever get to experience this again. But you know, there are the
1: answer never. Never. There
0: are <laughs> friends of mine who have kids, and like, you know, I'm sure th- Margie, I'm sure your day has been very different from mine, and like, your celebration of the holiday season looks a lot different than mine. Um, my perception is that yours would be more stressful, but also, I guess there's there's this flip side where you know there are more fun toys, and there's like yeah. cool stuff that kids get to do during the holiday season. Whereas I love Christmas and I was too busy to even put up a Christmas tree this year. Yeah. Like I, I I love Christmas and my Christmas tree is in a box in my closet because I just never had time to put it up. Yeah, like, exactly. That's crazy pants. That's yeah, crazy. Talk. It is. It is pretty
1: fun. So things that are pretty corny that you would not be able to get everybody to do, like drive a half hour to go see Christmas lights or something. I mean, that's something that you're like, when you've got kids, you're like, all right, everybody get in the car. <laughs> We're going to go look at some Christmas lights somewhere. Oh, no, I
0: did that this year too. And so <laughs> well, I still do that.
1: <laughs> I would not have done that without kids and um and uh and you know for lucy like yesterday i took her to see and i didn't i wasn't raised doing a lot of christmas stuff but what i so but i'm so now it's a lot of kind of learning as i go right and uh for lucy yesterday i took her to see santa at the mall and the santa was so grouchy like i thought he was a statue because he wasn't even smiling and there was no line and i'm like oh look at santa she's like Heck no, I'm not getting the guy's laugh. There's no way. And then finally we did it and she only would do it if I sat with her. So we had to take a picture with me and Beckett and Lucy and the Santa. And he didn't even ask you know, how, like what he she wanted for Christmas or anything. I mean, she was definitely like unimpressed by the whole thing. And I was trying to explain like, oh, it's San- Santa appears wherever. And and then I realized, like, who cares? Why am I pushing her to sit on this crazy old man's lap? <laughs> he's so grouchy, he's really miserable at this job. And we are not, not go to the top tier Santa place. But all the, you know, f- picking out the stockings, all that stuff, it's definitely way more fun than it would be if it was just me and my husband and my And the grandpas, you know, we would, you wouldn't. I would certainly would put far less effort into it, and everyone would be perfectly pleased that there was brunch casserole, and that'd be it, you know, (laughs) and be the end of it. So, um, so this is really a, uh, it is a lot more fun when we have like three, three little kids old enough to have fun, plus Beckett, who is happy no matter what happens, he's smiling. So, um, uh, but then the other thing that I think is interesting is that there are real age differences in how people celebrate Christmas. I guess it's probably not a surprise for an expert on millennials such as Kristen, author of the book The Selfie Vote, available where fine books about
0: millennials are sold. You still have time to get it on Kindle ebook for the person in your life that you love that you have not yet bought something for for Christmas. So, hint hint. No, I think that
1: would be that would be an excellent <laughs> gift. And so millennials are far more likely to think of Christmas as a cultural holiday than a religious holiday. Hey, this is another way that Margie is like a millennial. I buy gender neutral toys. And I think of Christmas as a cultural – I celebrate at least as a cultural uh, event. Um, and they're just as likely or I guess just as unlikely as everybody else to go caroling, <laughs> which I thought is funny, and far less likely to send Christmas cards, which I also don't do because who's got time for that? Not me. So, um so I guess in those I do earn some of my millennial points for the day. I mean, what do you think of these millennial differences about holidays? Are they are do you find yourself in similar similar ground with them?
0: Uh yeah, well so 81% of millennials say they put up a Christmas tree. So there's almost no generational divide on that question or if anything it's it's older older folks that are less likely to put up a tree. I wonder if it's just like physically harder to do so. Um, so I am sadly in the 18% of millennials this year who didn't, even though I have this whole box of ornaments and I'm like a Christmas crazy person. I, yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. Um, on this question of sending Christmas cards, that's the one where you see the, the real, the biggest uh, generation gap. I wonder if it's also, I mean, millennials are just not, we've had, you have email, you have texts. Like I'm sure Christmas morning, I'm going to wake up and my phone is going to be full of texts with, Christmas emoji from friends of mine from all over the country, including those who did not send me a paper Christmas card. Um, I, like maybe that's that's the new thing, I guess.
1: I mean, I wonder if it's something about just keeping the addresses is just complicated, right? Keeping the yeah, that's my
0: that's a big hurdle for me. It's a
1: big, and I spend a lot of time trying to keep my contacts up to date. And I have, I think I'm pretty good about the addresses. And once you get married, then you have at least some kind of foundation for some addresses, and then you can build on that. But still, it's still a bit of a lift. And but you know, to me, I just find it such a Herculean task. Like I have terrible handwriting. I guess I'm like a millennial. I don't want to write anything by hand anymore. I don't want to get everybody's address. Lord knows I don't want to go to the post office or figure out some other alternative to get everything out. It's just, you know, there's like 55 steps to send the (laughs) holiday cards that I find, you know, about 50 too many. So I guess in that way, that's probably what the hurdles are for a lot of millennials. So, Key findings, what we learned this week. This holiday, no need to be embarrassed by your family when there are still so many candidates to be embarrassed by. Um, it looks like voters are increasingly worried about security and terrorism, but I'm not necessarily convinced that'll drive voters in the primary or the general, but we'll see. Spoil Star Wars for me, but I will have to charge you. Or be like a millennial and have a great holiday with your family and friends. Christmas tree lists, and <laughs> Christmas card lists. Where can people learn more about us, Kristen?
0: Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at @thepolsters. You can find Margie at AtMargieOmero. And I'm at KSoltis Anderson. You can find us at ThePolsters.com or on Facebook, where throughout the week, probably less so over the next week or two, but you know, certainly still uh, in those down moments. If we find polls that we think are interesting, we will post them on our Facebook page um, for all of you to see. Great. Thanks. Have a great holiday.
1: Okay, now speak into this microphone. Okay, what What do I have to say? Whatever you want to say. What do you want to say? Do you have a message or do you want to sing a song? Do uh, you want to sing Let It Snow? Okay.
0: One, two, three. The snow falls so down, but none can hear it touch the ground. Let's
1: it,
2: pause and pause
1: and pause. <laughs> Very good. Could <laughs> you hear yourself singing it? Yeah. yeah? <laughs> good job. We'll send that to the grandparents, okay? Okay. Do you want to sing Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow? Let it Snow?
0: Yeah. One, two, three, go. I'm outside the bulb, and
1: place to go let's snow let, it snow, let it snow. That was excellent Lucy thank you Mwah. and thank you for that we have Lucy Mulvey singing let it snow. Mwah.
0: Eligible trade-in and finance agreement required. If you cancel service, you may lose promo credits. Contact us for details. Video at 480p. Small fraction of users over 50 gigs per month may have reduced speed. See store for details.